0: Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show...
1: It's about time we stop those of us who support, as most of us do, Israel and this body, for apologizing for our support for Israel. There's no apology to be made. None. It is the best $3 billion investment we make. Were there not an Israel, the United States of America would have to invent an Israel, to protect her
0: interest in the region. Mark Twain once said, God created war so that Americans would learn geography, a spark of enlightenment that Biden apparently never came across, even in his younger but no wiser years, ranting to Congress. And that would be the invention of Israel and the expropriation of somebody else's land in Palestine. Which is what has led us to the ensuing horror and progress there this Halloween week. And here to sort it all out and more is political analyst Pacifica host and contributor to this show, Garland Nixon.
2: Good evening. My name is Garland Nixon, and um and one of the things I like to do is try to Talk about things without really getting emotionally involved in them. And if you know anything about Garland Nixon and my struggle with emotions, period, <laughs> you know that ain't hard for me. I am not the most emotional person in the world for some reason. I can't, It's weird because about certain things I can be emotional but not many. I'm just, uh, I'd be so stoic about things and I don't know what it is. It's, you know, maybe, is it autism? I don't know. Am I a sociopath? I don't know what it is, but I just struggle. I just like reason everything out. And then there's no emotions left to be there. It's like, sure, that happened, but let me try to figure out why. And I end up not being, it, it ends up a curiosity rather than an emotional reaction. And when I see people emotionally react, I'm like, that seems strange to me. I wonder why people react like that. Isn't that weird? But then there's instances where I re- react emotionally, but they're few and far between. So you know, it's a it's a blessing and a curse. How about that? It's a blessing when something happens that you should be destroyed about, and you're just like, hmm, that's interesting. And it's you know, a, a, a uh, it's a curse when uh, you know somebody asks you a question. Hey, do I look fat in this dress? And you don't understand the nature of that context of that question. And you just see it like you really think they're asking you if you look fat in that dress. And you're like, oh, no, it ain't the dress that makes you look fat. You probably should have gained 30. Oh, no. Right. So, you know, that's the issues <laughs> that I have. Um, but at any rate, I, I, I digress. Let me start off. We got plenty to talk about. We're going to talk about the, in a philosophical way. We're going to talk about what's happening in the Middle East. You know, when I think about the uh, what's going on in in, in Gaza at this time, there's a couple of things that come to mind. The first is this, uh, a uh, uh, Stephen Covey quote and I don't know where he got it from but it's not what happens to you that determines your future it is your reaction to what happens to you and um, there, what happened in Gaza was the Hamas attack we're going to talk about that a little bit and then what happened is Israel and the United States reaction and that has created the pronounced worldwide effect the reaction to this, the violent reaction and the refusal to get involved in a ceasefire um, um, the violence against civilians the seemingly seem to me, the term I would use uh, based on my law enforcement background, of course, the term I would use is a reckless disregard for human life. That's what it appears, appears to me, uh, a reckless disregard for civilians. And that is uh, causing great backlash. Now, I to say that. To, so, so my position. So if anybody wants to attack me, you're standing up for this group or that group. I stand for international law. That's what I that's where I'm for. Now, let's talk about something that I've I've been considering, and that is the reality of, hey, look, these 1,000 to 1,400 or so members of Hamas, Palestinians, came out and they launched this attack. And most of them were killed on Israeli, knowing that they were the likelihood was they're going to die, knowing that the likelihood was that they were going to perish. But what what made me think is this, because I remember there is an article and it's in Time Magazine, right? And I'll go to two things. It was in Time Magazine, and it's by uh, Dr. Ayaj Siraj. It was April—Monday, April 8, 2002. And the name of it was Why We Blow Ourselves Up. A Palestinian doctor explains why so many of his people want to be martyrs, right? And I thought about that, because why? Why do 1,000 people embark on this action knowing that they, the odds of them coming out of it are close to zero, right? Why do Palestinian fighters—why are they doing this? And I recall— um, I forgot where I was listening to this, but could it have been the gray zone? Whatever the case may, may, may be, they were talking about, um, interviewing people in Palestine. And there were these, you might remember a couple years ago, there were a bunch of kids were playing on the beach. The Israelis filed, fired a missile or some kind of a round in there. It blew up. It killed four of the kids, four or five of the kids and four of the kids survived. And afterwards, this person, you know, had interviewed the kids What are you doing? And the kids before had aspirations. I want to do this or that or be this or that. After their friends were killed by the military, by these missiles, they all said, we want to be Palestine. We want to be resistance fighters. That's what they said. We want to be resistance fighters. Well, and you ask yourself, well, how would you feel if you were playing and somebody lobbed a missile and killed your best friends and your brothers? Blah blah blah. At that point, they want they decided that's what I want to do. That's something to consider to think about, dude. Because you got to think: are the Palestinian people just sitting around smoking a cigarette, taking a shot of bourbon, looking out the window? You know. I think I'll just take a machine gun and go attack this powerful military and I'll probably get killed. It ain't that easy. So that is why we blow ourselves up. You can find that online. It's still there and it's a a good article to read. But I'll tell you what I refer to as a black person. I refer to a book that I would recommend that people read called The Fires of Jubilee, Nat Turner's Fierce Rebellion, because- If you look at the Palestinian situation, it is clear that they ain't getting a fair shot. You know what I mean? Here you have a bunch of people that are in a city, you know, what, half the size of New York City or something, right? It's a big city, packed one of the most um, crowded places on earth, right? And they're pretty much under siege. Literally, the Israeli government counts the number of people and counts the calories that they'll come in, that, that, that are allowed to come in, and they give them just enough. They allow just enough calories in for them to survive and, and struggle, right? They, at one point, it was like no chocolate was allowed. I, mean, I don't know if there's chocolate allowed now. No chocolate allowed. Oh, no frivolities. You know, that's too good for the Palestinians, right? It, it, you know, now they've cut off water. And electricity and all of those things, right? And this is the same, you know, U.S. government that during Ukraine, everything that happened, oh, the Russians are doing this, that's evil. They've hit a power station, that's evil, blah, blah, blah. And now none of that applies to the Palestinians. All of the standards that were applied to Ukraine, none of them apply to the brown folks, to the Muslim folks, to the Palestinians, No standards. That's why I say I believe in rule of law as opposed to arbitrary application of the law. If it's wrong to do to the white folks in Ukraine— then it's wrong to do than the Palestinians. But if you really understand the truth about both of those conflicts, what they have in common is the root of Ukraine is the United States. The United States caused that Ukraine conflict. The United States by expanding NATO all the way up to Russia's border. And Russia said, if NATO comes into Ukraine, we're going to war. They said that in 2008. So don't pretend like you didn't know that if you came into Ukraine and the United States started building bases in Ukraine, that Russia wasn't going to blast them. Because the truth is, if Russia and China started building bases in Mexico, the United States would blast them. There's no question about it. Let's not try to pretend like Russia is any different superpower than us. Let's not forget what happened with the Cuban Missile Crisis. The Russians said, hey, we're going to put missiles in Cuba, and the United States says we'll have a nuclear war before we'll let you do it. So don't think that the United States is going to be able to encroach up into Ukraine, build bases, put missiles and everything in there, and Russia ain't going to war. You're wasting your time thinking that. It's a dream. I don't know why people think that other superpowers are going to allow us to do things that we can't do, that that, that we're not going to allow them to do. Forget it. Ain't happening now what my point is now i said the united states is at fault for the ukraine war it's like oh russia just woke up one day and invaded invaded ukraine putin just woke up said hey it's thursday i hate democracy i'm an evil authoritarian guy out there get out of here the united states encroached up into ukraine and russia said that ain't happen we're going to war and we would do the same thing if they if the if the shoes were reversed in mexico now I say that to say this. It's the United States that's in fault in Israel for this reason. Look, 1948, Israeli comes in. They take the Palestinians' land. That's wrong. I It's, it's completely wrong. I disagree with it. They, they call it the Nakba. They took people's houses. They throw them out. Okay. We are where we are today and have been for years. The United States funds Israel. The United States arms Israel. It is the United States responsibility, and it has been all along. As in 1948, the U.N. said the Palestinians should have their own state. All the United States had to do was say, look, Israel, we fund you. We pay your bills. We arm you. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to sit down at the negotiating table. The Palestinians are going to get their own state. They're going to be able to do what they want there. They're going to be able, it's going to be their land and they're going to run it and they're going to have autonomy and you ain't going to mess with them. That's all we, if we'd done that, we wouldn't be here, but the United States wouldn't do that, would they? Oh no, Israel, just do whatever you want to the Palestinians. Infuriated the entire Muslim community and you're a Palestinian Sixty percent unemployment amongst young men in in Palestinian territories in Gaza. How could it be anything different in Gaza? How could it be anything different? It's literally a prison. You get you you, you get an education now. Sixty percent unemployment. How can a young man who has no job and no future can he get married? what's he going to do? Is he going to, hey, hi, how are you? I'd like to marry you. And what's, what's going to happen? The young woman's going to say, well, what are we going to Oh, you can come home and sleep in my bedroom with me, with my parents, until the Israelis push the building down.
0: And coming up next on the show, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. And those were the fighting words back then of the late Shirley Chisholm the first black woman elected to Congress and the first woman to run for president, and who would have been 99 years old this month on November 30th, and which is the subject of the upcoming biopic Shirley, starring Regina King and co-starring Terrence Howard, who is our guest this week on the show. Howard will be talking about that and much more, including his current turn as the sentimental owner of a movie theater threatened to be taken over and knocked down by real estate vultures invading the working class neighborhood in this exceedingly unconventional neo-Western showdown at the Grand.
1: Here at the Warner Grand, we operate 365 days a year. We got a little something for everybody. Our company would like to offer you a very generous amount for this place.
3: Some folks there will rob you with a six-shooter, and others... with a foul pair.
4: It's time you either play ball or stay out of my way.
3: You said you were coming back
1: for Mr. Hollywood. You got real combat training,
3: right?
1: You'll be fine.
3: Stay away from my friends,
1: my theater,
3: and my neighborhood. I hate blood. Terminate with extreme prejudice. You want a grant? Come and get
1: it. Wait, wait, I'm not ready.
0: And Howard, who may have reigned supreme as corporate boss Luscious Lion in the dramatic series Empire relates during our conversation being ripped off by Hollywood in that regard, financially and related to the ongoing Wall Street-controlled Hollywood East and West actors strike. First, another scene from Showdown at the Grant. Then Howard, first discussing why he was on his way to a film set in Europe just now, but got turned around due to the current conflict in the Middle East and what he has to say about all that. <laughs>
3: Oh, uh, have a seat, oh. apologies about the air conditioner, pop the fuse. Yeah, it says here you're a doctor?
2: Yes, sir. A doctor of cinema. <clears throat> and the theater is my hospital. I-, I wrote my dissertation on Western imperialist pop culture as a form of soft capitalism in Taiwanese new wave. Like, uh, Bergman, Goddard, uh, Simon Ming-Ling.
3: Those are films. This is the movie business. It's nitty gritty. You gotta make a dollar from a nickel.
2: Yes, um, a lowly servant protecting the audience's suspension of disbelief at all
4: costs—twenty-four frames per second.
3: So you're saying all the right things, but there's more to it than that. This is this is a marriage, a sacrifice. You know, through thick and thin. Um, sometimes you gotta forego eating dinner just to get the. Concession stand field. You know what I mean? Now, how do I know that when things get rough? You ain't gonna just slip out on me.
2: Because I got nowhere else to go. Only place I feel like I mattered is when I walked through those doors. Listen, sir, when I am in, I am all in. Start today. Can I ask what my pay will be?
3: I figured I'd start you off as an intern and see how well you can swim with the sharks. (laughs) Welcome to the Warner Grant.
0: Hello, Terrence Howard, and welcome.
1: Okay,
0: good. Great, okay. Now you're currently on your way flying to Rome. Is that to a film set?
1: Um, Well, right now I'm actually we were supposed to be in Rome, but um, we ended up having to cancel that because of all of the international unrest going through the areas we would have to fly through, oh. you know, in order to get there. You know, with what's happening with with Israel and um, the world right now. Oh, you It wasn't mean- safe travel right now. doesn't make sense in traveling.
0: You mean your flight was canceled?
1: Well, no, we canceled the flights because of the uncertainty of, you know, the times. You know, you, I think we're headed definitely, we're, we're already in the midst of World War III. Whether people want to admit it or not, I just, I think it's, you know, every country is going to get involved in this, this, this war now as uh-huh. it moves forward. So, so we just, we chose not to take the trip to, to go to Rome. Um, even though it would have been a great, a great journey. So we're here now, still in L.A., waiting oh. for things to make sense.
0: <laughs> oh, have you been down at the protests there in L.A.?
1: Yeah, we've seen so much. And, yeah. I mean, on both sides, there's so much pain. And um, that's what happens when governments get involved in what should be um, a personal choice for people, Right now, you know, how does anyone win, you know, with regard to what the Palestinians want and need and what with regard to what Israel wants and needs? Um, I don't know how the conflict is ever resolved, you know, without a lot of bloodshed and then all of the different nations attached to it. It seems like where we are with the film, you know. Yeah. uh, yeah, You can't win. How does someone win? How does the grand win? George never ultimately wins. He puts up the fight for what he wants, but, you know, he's ultimately going to be rolled over into this mess. And hopefully someone else picks up the flag. But where the world today, I don't know how we all recover.
0: Well, you are certainly fighting the power in this film. What was it about Showdown at the Grand, this story, and your character, George, that got you inspired to be part of this film?
1: I think the tenacity to war, to fight for what you believed in. I think the fact um, it touches on, you know, we know George is a little off. Mm -hmm. The fact that he's wearing a, a, a cowboy belt that he had when he was eight years old, and he keeps that on. Um, I think he's a high functioning, he's definitely a high functioning autistic, and <laughs> to some degree, um, I love the fact that he just wanted to do what was right despite the consequences that came from it. Mm. You know, wasn't making a profit, but, re- but refused to leave his field because he loved sowing and, and tilling in that field so much even if it never was going to bring in a good harvest. It's the principles that I appreciate about him. And that's what we're missing in our lives today, is those principles of having something worth fighting or dying for. Mm. That's what makes the difference. Um, We have to be willing to, to die for something, you know, or you'll never really live. You'll never enjoy the life that you have. So he found something worth dying for.
0: And would you say there's anything personal for you about this story, either as an actor or your own life experiences?
1: Um, well, this banner, you know, of being an independent human being, to being a, maintaining your man card no matter what, um, despite whatever has come from the industry, you know, the refusal to to surrender your man card, the, the, res- the refusal, to surrender the masculinity that is necessary. In nature, we have, there's two forces. There's only two actions. It's either filling something up or emptying it out. Mm-hmm. Breathing in is a masculine thing, very necessary for charging the system, powering it. Breathing out is, is a feminine action in the sense that it expands and, and discharges that which was collected. Both are very necessary in order for the equanimity of the universe to continue to work. But we've now, what was done for many years, they vilified feminine deity and made it a very bad thing, and now they've done that, now they're doing that with the masculine side. And we need the balance of the, the soft femininity with the strength of masculinity, and that's what George represents, that 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 beautiful human being called man that's gonna make bad decisions, but making the bad decisions for the right reasons. He's gonna sacrifice himself for what he believes in. And that's what men are supposed to be in this lifetime. That stature that um, that holds everything up, that doesn't change no matter what. The the sun is still gonna hold its position. And that's what I think George is. He holds his position to the very end.
0: And speaking of the system, what are your thoughts about the ongoing actors strike?
1: Well, that's similar to what George was fighting against. Mm -hmm. Like right now with the actors, we're fighting for our image. We're fighting for the rights associated with our likeness. We're fighting for the ability to control how our likeness is used and and to monetize that likeness, whereas the studios, all they want to do is take all of the previous work you've done that you've assigned to them for particular use in one particular film. They now want to take all of those image, images and say we own those images and we want to mix them with another group of images and make a composite work, create a montage of different voices together from other actors. And we're going to call this a composite work and we don't owe you anything for it, you know, because you've signed this away. And it's, it's like, no, as a singer, you sing a song, but so every time they play that song, you're supposed to get some benefit from it. But as an actor, you don't get that anymore. And like with Empire, all of those shows, I've never seen a dollar of residuals mm-hmm. from it. all of the films that I had back in. I've never received a back in from that because Screen Actors Guild isn't fighting for it. Yeah. You know, Screen Actors Guild, I think, is the bigger, is, is more to blame than than the actors or the studios right now because Screen Actors Guild has allowed the studios to take advantage of actors and never did anything About it until now they're coming to say something that I went to Screen Actors Guild when I was doing Hustle and Flow after they had stolen, after Fox had stolen my image from Hustle and Flow and put it into um, Empire as the logo. I went to Screen Actors Guild and was like, hey, they've stolen my image and they're doing this with it. Screen Actors Guild sat on their butt for six months to a year and waited until the statute of limitations was gone in order to say something about it. They didn't feel like they were really there to support us, and I don't think that they're there to support us now. Mm. I think this is just a posturing, and I think we need to form an entirely new union in order to deal with some of the challenges that have come and that are facing actors, because we haven't had a contract for 21 years with the with the agents, and that's why the agents have been able to manipulate us for so long. So. I have an issue with Green Actors Guild um, and what they should be doing. And um, I think the actors need to work together and form an entirely new union.
0: And getting back to the film, at one point you lament what may be lost, your movie theater, the same as, quote, the taco guy down the street and the steel mill that was around the corner. I just happened to show pictures and fantasies to escape from all that madness in the streets. And as an indictment about what is going on everywhere with real estate conglomerate urban removal in this country. What are your thoughts about that?
1: If you improve the community by removing the heart out of that system, then you've just mechanized what used to be a living, breathing being and you've just turned it into an automated process. You need the the changes of the rhythm of the heart. The heart adjusts it's connected directly to the brain. So when something is fright, frightening, the heart increases, heart rate increases, more blood is bumped to the system. When something is bad, the heart rate slows a bit. All of these things, what they're doing is building a society where the heart is taken out of those mechanisms that regulate the, um, the care and community, the care of the community. That's being taken away. And so what we have to do is keep our culture by defending the principles. Those principles are based on those ties, those sinews that keep the heart muscles tied to the person. We have to maintain that sense of allegiance to responsibility and what is right, because that's the thing that's going to push us into the future. And if you have those traditions and those principles, you're always going to maintain the homeostasis necessary to keep promoting the growth of the community. And we've lost that um, because we're chasing after money and not after principle and not after life. Mm. You know, you have to make way for life. You must make way for life. That's what we do. And that's what I think George was trying to accomplish with this film. You know, you you got to keep the heart into it, even though you can have a multiplex cinema, you know, that could have, all kind of things taking place the taco guy down the street was important because that taco guy down the street fed all of the smaller communities the steel mill down the street that used to work used to be responsible for building all of these buildings that we have today and if you get rid of those you get rid of the average blue blue collar worker and you know, then mm. then you lose you lose the community you lose the community, you lose the city. And you lose the city, the country's done.
0: And what can you say about your other film coming up, Shirley, starring Regina King, about Shirley Chisholm and in which you co-star and what you're up to in the movie?
1: Um, Again, we're dealing with someone who is fighting the system. Shirley Chisholm, when she chose to become president, um, run for president in the early 70s, she knew what she was fighting against. She knew at the, at the time women were not being respected in the industry, of, um, of political industry. It was a long walk. It's been a long walk for, for women. And she knew that the likelihood of her winning was, was slim to none. But she knew by running and giving the chance to young women that they would see uh, an opportunity for themselves to, to grow in the future. And I think Regina was amazing as an actress. In that part, and I love to be able to support her, and I look forward to seeing what this how this film comes about. John Ridley is a really brilliant director
0: oh, yeah. and if you
1: remember having um, twelve years a slave, you know some of the choices that he made in that film were were powerful and he's very similar in this one
0: and what are you up to in the movie?
1: I play a young man named Arthur. And one of the older gentleman that was a huge supporter of Shirley ended up becoming her husband.
0: And you're also quite philosophical as well as nostalgic in Showdown at the Grant. You quote Orson Welles, and at one point Oppenheimer, "I am become death, destroyer of worlds." What can you say about that?
1: <laughs> uh, well, you literally you you know we are part of everything that we make. You have to be careful of the characters you play now because the karma doesn't end when they say cut or rap. That stuff follows you, you know. Um, my wife always tells me a story of Martha Stewart, who used to live with Anthony Hopkins, and then after Anthony played um, Le- Hannibal Lecter, you know, she had to break up with him because she couldn't be on that 50-acre property. Okay. With Hannibal Lecter, right there. <laughs> you, you, your characters that you play character, color you and continue on with you. So you have to be very, very careful of the roles that you pick and make sure that these roles and characters are going to lead to a good place because you're going to all forever be a burden by the choices that you made or the choices you didn't make in those characters. So I'm really careful now. I I loved who he was. I love making references to Oppenheimer, you know, what Lynn did and his reference to Orson Welles and Orson's beauty about when you stop a film, you know whether it's going to be a happy ending or not, it just depends on who you are and what you want to do. But I defend the right of filmmakers to tell their story and to continue to influence the characters of, of our society today, like Shakespeare said. Life is but a stage. It's just a play. Everyone you know, our actors in there. And we have to know the role that we're supposed to play.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Terrence Howard, for joining us on the show.
1: Thank you. I hope that there's enough theaters left for people to go and see it. <laughs> but as long as people message and follow they're at home, you know, that they are responsible for what takes place in their community. We all have a personal responsibility to, to maintaining the traditions and our culture. And if we let that go, you know, then our society will fall.
0: Yeah. Okay, thanks again. And good luck getting to Rome.
1: <laughs> nah, no, nah, we'll get there next year.
0: Huh. All right, bye. Bye-bye. And we'll go out now with our Arts Express Crew Spotlight in a conversation with actress extraordinaire Mary Murphy and what she has seen going down as well with the continuing Hollywood actor strike.
5: Hi, this is Jack Shalom. The SAG-AFTRA strike has now been going since July 14th, more than three months without a contract. We've heard a lot in the press from both sides about the seemingly intractable negotiations, when there are negotiations, But I thought today I'd like to bring it closer to home by talking with someone who our regular listeners know, having done so many wonderful readings and performances on Arts Express, the wonderful actress Mary Murphy. First, let me play you a short excerpt from one of her many performances on the show.
4: Next up on our holiday gift wish list is a wish come true. The HIMARS High Mobility Artillery Rocket System. Now, this is something we've never offered before on the Home Shopping Weapons Network before today. And they are just going, going, almost gone. These rockets have a range that is just out of this world. You are going to love these. The elegance, the style, the choice of colors. This is the weapon system that you will be proud to call your own or give as a gift. These missiles have been in short supply since their recent deployment to Ukraine. But we have got a shipment at a price you will not believe. And that's why we sell them in a family gift box of three. You can see them here. The box is just a gorgeous presentation. It's got the Mars imprint, assuring that it's American-made, not a Chinese knockoff. And if you're giving for Christmas, you have the Cherry Red Pine Green color option. Or for our Jewish friends, you can order the Sky Blue Arctic White combination.
5: And that was a performance by Mary Murphy, who I'm speaking with right now. Hi, Mary. Hi, Jack. Those who have listened to Arts Express know that Mary is a superb actress and recently played the lead role in our Arts Express radio production of Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse. I want to talk to you about the actor's strike, but let's just go a little bit into your background before we begin. I know you're not one to toot your own horn, but tell us a bit about your own acting journey and formative experiences.
4: Sure. I have a background in theater. I've done some film and TV. I have a background also as a voice actor. And with that, I've done a little bit of everything, some animation, audio dramas, video games, uh, commercials, industrials.
5: And most of that would be covered by SAG-AFTRA. Yes. Were you originally a New Yorker? or Are you from out of town?
4: Well, I'm from New York State. I am originally from Niagara, but then my parents had moved downstate when I was growing up, so I pretty much grew up out on eastern Long Island, so not too far out of the city, about, you know, two hours.
5: And you did your training in New York City or or elsewhere?
4: I did. I went to a program for acting at Circle in the Square
5: you had a particular focus in the kind of acting that you wanted to do?
4: I don't know if I had a particular focus. I just was very eager. I wanted to learn and absorb and try out different things.
5: So you you came to New York and you took these classes at Circle in the Square and, and you obviously got work. Do you remember what your first SAG-AFTRA job was and, and when you got your union card?
4: Yes, I got my union card through a voice matching gig. And for anyone who might not know what that is, I, Uh it's, you know, pretty much when you are approximating another actor's voice, because that actor might be unavailable to do those lines, you know, because they have another job. And so this, this is
5: post-production, in other words, if something well, didn't come out it right? it can or- be.
4: It can be post-production. It can, but this was actually very unusual. This was an extra track that they were layering into a film as a bonus for for anyone who was watching the film at home. The film had already been released. And so this was kind of, they wanted the characters to have a commentary and it was a pretty long uh, script, about, I'd say, about an hour um, uh-huh. of material. Uh-huh. So that's that's what it was.
5: So it was like a DVD bonus, and it was supposed to be the actor talking about the actor's experiences during the filming kind of thing.
4: Yes. I, I
5: see. <laughs> <laughs> so nobody knew it was you. So you were like uh, Marnie Nixon singing for Audrey Hepburn. And and you got your Union card, and how, how did you feel about it?
4: I was very excited. It was a big milestone for me. I really wanted wanted to become a member. And when I got this gig, I was very determined to make sure that, that it happened. So I was very excited to join. Well, let's
5: turn to the strike. What are the issues on the table that you particularly feel strongly about?
4: I feel strongly about all of the issues, but I'll speak a bit about the AI one first, I guess. Um, You know, that is a tricky thing because we have this amazing technology, but it can also be very exploitative. Mm -hmm. And the fact that your image can be used and imposed is a pretty significant issue.
5: How has it been for you personally has the way you go about gaining work or looking for work changed in the last three months?
4: Well, there's been less work available, so I, I'd say yes. There are some projects that are still continuing either under a special contract or commercials really haven't been affected by this. Initially, also, video games were not, but then the video games did ex- join the strike as well. So, you know, I think there are a lot more people applying for much less work in a field that's already highly competitive. So I would say that's how it's changed the whole process.
5: And is there a spillover effect into other jobs that, that I, actors are lo- yes, looking Yes, I for? think
4: so. I, th- I think that's definitely true. I think any survival job that actors do, whether it's um, temp work, I do a lot of teaching artist work, I maybe um, standardized patient work. I think all of those things that actors do in between gigs are flooded with more people because people need a paycheck. Hmm.
5: So the the competition is is all the way down the line. Then the extra competition.
4: So yes, really- i i have def I definitely think that's a case. Uh-huh.
5: I, I know a lot of actors talk about the health plan, and I know that's certainly a a big part of the discussion can, can you talk a bit about that about how that works
4: well basically you have to earn a certain amount under a sag after contract to qualify for health benefits so not working especially if you're close to making your hours and all of a sudden you're not working for several months is a pretty significant issue maybe if you're you know a big celebrity it might not Affect you in the same way, but if you're one of many, many actors who are going from gig to gig, it definitely has an impact.
5: So there's a certain number of weeks that you have to be active uh, on the payroll per year in order to first even qualify for the yes health plan. That's every year, or that's once you make it, you've made it for for no, no,
4: no. That's that's something that you have to. It's every year. I wish it was once you make that number and you're set but no that's not how it works.
5: So you have to scramble every year all over again ho- hoping to hit that magic number of 25 or 26 or whatever it is something like that. I wow. That's that's really difficult. So you could be in the middle of a, of a procedure or something and lose your health care.
4: Yeah, no it is a it I think it's a pretty serious issue and I believe that there are they're making some allowances perhaps for the last few months but it still is going to hurt a lot of people.
5: I know that George Clooney and other high-earning actors recently came up with a proposal um that was rejected by the guild they they were I I think Clooney was offering to put in some of his own money I mean which was kind of uh you know very generous of him, but also a little tone deaf. I think. Uh, do you think that there might be a different perception of what is needed by the high earners compared to the average SAG-AFTRA member?
4: I would think definitely by some. I, you know, I believe that other people might have a little more of an awareness. But also, as far as my understanding um, in terms of that particular proposal, I don't think it's sustainable. Because really what they need to do is work with the studios to, you know, get the residuals. Also, you know, there's there's less work because the series do not have as many episodes. So this is kind of looking at the way that the industry has evolved and trying to figure out how it can be sustainable and fair for the majority of its employees.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think it was... It was very nice of him to offer the money, but um, that's
4: but it, not wouldn't how it a contract a
5: pro- is made. <laughs> yeah,
4: it, it would not fix the actual problem.
5: Do you think the producers want to settle, or do you think they're waiting for the actors to be really desperate as Christmas time rolls around and the colder weather comes?
4: I would like to think that most people don't come to the table with malintent. I would like to believe that they're just unaware that they're kind of, you know, to use your term tone deaf, disconnected from what the realities are for most people who who are doing this work because they've never been in that position.
5: Yeah. I mean, it's not just the actors. It's, well, we saw it happening with the writers and the rest of the entertainment industry, workers all over the country. I think there are more strikes, you know, in the last year or two than there have been a long, long time.
4: Absolutely. The fact that the um, auto workers were on strike and we yeah. had a president go onto the picket lines with them is a pretty extraordinary move. I don't think that's ever happened before. So I hope that this is an indication that there is a shift in perception and a, a push to return to labor protections for everyone.
5: I don't want to put anybody on the spot, but because we see it every day. Here on Arts Express, we get uh, PR people wanting to push their projects all the time, and we understand that. And usually, what happens is the actor comes on and talks about their movie or play or whatever. But rightly so, SAG-AFTRA has said no. You know, you're not allowed to do that. But what happens is we get messages all the time from PR people saying, "Oh." Well, we have this director who wants to talk about their project. Or, oh, we have this writer that wants to talk about their project. And that is kind of disappointing to hear because both those unions, the writers and the directors, say that, you know, they're fully in support of the actors. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering what's going on there.
4: Yeah, I, I understand your point. It might send a stronger message, rather, if if no one was was doing any of that. But everyone really wants to work, so I don't know. It's hard.
5: Do you think things have changed uh, because of COVID?
4: Definitely. They were already going in the direction of people really working from their home studios and that being an expectation. And now with COVID, you really need to have a professional setup And you need to be able to turn things around on your own. I mean, of course, there are some jobs where you will still be brought in in person, but it's become much more expansive. So you can work with agents everywhere, producers everywhere. You can apply for jobs that are not in your immediate market. It was already happening prior to COVID, but that really accelerated the second second we shut down.
5: Do you have any predictions about what might be happening with the strike?
4: Oh, I need a crystal ball. <laughs> um, <laughs> I am not sure. Um, I'm going to remain cautiously optimistic that it's resolved soon. Okay. And resolved hope- in a way that is beneficial for, for the, all of the actors.
5: Yeah, yeah. yeah. It seems like there's some really important, difficult questions that have to be resolved, and I, I think it's going to take a lot of creativity in a way because, you know, it's 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 hard to put controls on technology, isn't it? It
4: really I mean. is. The same thing with you know the writers and the idea that oh AI can write your script. It's just such a wild thing, right? I never would have thought. It feels like a sci-fi. Movie or something. it It doesn't seem real, but it is. And I guess it's a question of dealing with the technology in a responsible way that doesn't exploit anyone, right? Um, yeah, so
5: Mary, where else can we see or hear you now in a way that doesn't violate the strike, aside from Arts Express?
4: <laughs> well, I was recently heard in an animation piece that was um, screening at the Woodstock Film Festival. I also just performed with Fireside Mystery Theater, and they will be releasing that onto their podcast feed in a few weeks. Great. And I'll be doing this reenactment of old-time radio plays later this week, and that's with a group called WOW. Uh-huh. And then next month, I'll be in something called the Spark Festival, which is a festival of new plays in development, and that'll be at um, Emerging Artist Theatre.
5: Great, great. Is there anything else you'd like to add?
4: Well, I, yeah, I would like to say one thing. I recently went to a dedication for the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, and they put up this beautiful plaque that... The artists were just extraordinary, where the names of each victim are reflected. If you are in the West Village, and I highly recommend going over there and and looking at it. It's so beautiful. But I bring it up because obviously it was this awful industrial accident. But one of the reasons as to why it happened in the way that it did was that prior to the fire, there were union delegates going and meeting with the workers. And the people who owned the factory did not want them unionizing. And they shut, locked those doors. They also said that they were locking them so that they wouldn't take a break or wouldn't steal any fabric. Mm -hmm. But the fact that they were trying to keep other people out was another reason. And it's obviously contributed to this terrible, terrible tragedy. So I bring it up because it was such a catalyst for labor rights. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's something that we need to be reminded of, that everyone in every industry, every field needs to be treated with dignity and be given basic, basic work protections
5: Well, I'm looking forward to you SAG-AFTRA actors winning their rights.
4: Looking forward to that, too.
5: (laughs) Thanks so much, Mary. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with our Arts Express stalwart, Mary Murphy. You can find out what Mary is up to on her website, MaryMurphyOnline.com. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. Hey, just a quick postscript. Since we recorded that interview a few days ago, Mary has written telling me that her brother in L.A., who works full-time in film, hasn't worked since July because of the strike, and has little faith in the Netflix and Apple execs. He also reports that no one in L.A. can get a job at any of the restaurants, and even driving for Uber has become difficult. But on the brighter side, it looks like negotiations have started again. And perhaps by the time you hear this, let's hope so.
4: Don't scare for the bosses, don't listen to their lies. Oh, folks ain't got a chance unless they organize. Which are you on, boys? are you
0: on? And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, expression in the arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at the Goddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.